Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the mighty power of your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way in which you work in and through your word. I pray this morning that you would do that work that only you can do in changing hearts, in breaking down pride and arrogance and replacing it with humility. pray that you would grant repentance this day by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we noted last week that Jesus would not be deterred from the mission which his father had given him. Threats from Herod wouldn't frighten Jesus. Herod, remember, wasn't the only one that wanted Jesus' death. And Jesus' ultimate plan wasn't to evade death but to willingly lay down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice. So when these Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Herod's breathing threats of your death, Jesus isn't frightened at all. Whether the threat was a lie concocted by some of these scheming Pharisees to push Jesus immediately back to Jerusalem so they might be able to capture him and arrest him, or an actual scare tactic coming from Herod himself who was hoping to push Jesus out of his governing district because, remember, he himself was kind of superstitious and paranoid that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist raised back to life. Whatever the origin of this, Jesus resolutely declared to those Pharisees, go and tell that fox, Herod, that I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. I understand that Jesus has intentions of finally leaving Herod's jurisdiction. He is very truly on his way to a final meeting with Jerusalem. He would indeed be leaving Herod, but he wouldn't leave because of political pressure. It wouldn't be out of an effort to save his own skin. As a matter of fact, Jesus' leaving would be in accordance with the divine plan of God and would progress according to God's timetable as a result. He wouldn't go a moment sooner and he wouldn't go a moment later. And note that his travel to Jerusalem would not be out of an effort to escape death, but to meet it. And not only meet death, but defeat it. Praise the Lord. And so this morning, as we pick up with the next verse in the Gospel according to Luke, we aren't surprised to see a demonstration of exactly what Jesus told those Pharisees. He said, today, tomorrow, the next day, I have to continue doing my work. I'm going to be teaching. I'm going to be healing. And so it's not all that surprising that when we come into Luke 14, we're given a demonstration of exactly what Jesus said He would be doing, healing and teaching. 
That's not surprising. But what is a little surprising is the setting for this episode. We're told that Jesus is present in the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, and he's eating bread with them and his associates on the Sabbath. By now, we're much more accustomed to Jesus spending time with the undesirables of society. Remember, this is one of the complaints the Pharisees had with Jesus, is that he spent time with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. So it almost seems a little strange to us. But this is not the first time that Jesus spent time around the dinner table with the religious elite. Jesus had already had several run-ins with the religious leaders, though, and we're already well aware of their attempt to put together a plot to find some evidence against Jesus, to be able to arrest him and even to stone him. So we might ask this question, though, while Jesus might have spent some time with the Pharisees, why is he spending any more time with them? I mean, why is he accepting another dinner invitation from a Pharisee? Some have argued that it might have just been in keeping with custom. Perhaps Jesus had come into this local place and uh, in keeping with custom, if a traveling teacher or rabbi would to travel into town, they would be invited by the local leaders of the synagogue after services conducted on the Sabbath, assuming that that's what happened right prior to this meal. This might be true, but Jesus on other occasions had no problem going against custom and decorum and procedures. So why does Jesus go to this house on this day? It's certainly possible that what we have here in Luke 14 is maybe one of those rare exceptions where we have a Pharisee and associates of this Pharisee who are genuinely interested in Jesus out of a genuinely good and pure motive. However, if you read the very end of verse 1, it seems like the text leans us away from that interpretation. For we're told that they were watching him closely. Another way that can be translated is they were scrutinizing him. This description and what we'll read in the following narrative pushes the reader to conclude that there were some ulterior motives behind what's leading this Pharisee to invite Jesus over for supper. And Jesus, who knew the intentions of men's hearts, would be definitely able to ascertain this. So why does he go? Well, if I could posit a potential answer to that question... I believe it's yet again a marvelous demonstration of the patience and forbearance of God. To see that Jesus would yet again willingly go right into the lion's den. Willingly shows just the wondrous love that he had even towards the wicked. No one can say that God does not love the world. He continually shows his loving forbearance towards a sinful and rebellious world. Even those who are not ultimately redeemed have been afforded so much common grace. Remember, Jesus says, if you want to be like your Father in heaven, then be like Him. And one of the things that He does is He causes the sun to rise and the just and the unjust alike. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And so we see in Jesus' own ministry that many people were graced with His presence. Not just those who were friends to Him, but also Jesus' enemies. And as a result of this, all excuses would be removed. Remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus, are we blind too? Remember in this dialogue in John's Gospel, Jesus said, well, if you were blind, maybe you have an excuse, but there's no excuses for you. All excuses would be removed. When the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus, they did it in the face of overwhelming evidence. Their rebellion was not from a position of ignorance. You see, on this particular Sabbath, Jesus was offering yet another warning to selfish men who refused to admit what they needed most. Jesus. This would be explained through Jesus' teaching on this occasion, as well as through His miraculous healing of a man suffering from dropsy. But these religious leaders were so obsessed with self-promotion, with selfish agendas, that they could not become beneficiaries of what Jesus had come to give Their own self-love would be their own destruction. No, while that is the case of so many today, their love of self ends up being their own destruction. In a sermon entitled, Wrongful Preoccupation, Wrongful Preoccupation, I want to highlight two consequences, two consequences of obsession with oneself, with loving oneself, 
with selfish ambition. And the two points are very simply stated. Those who are preoccupied with themselves fail to relate to God rightly. Those who are preoccupied with themselves fail to relate to God rightly. And those preoccupied with themselves, number two, fail to relate to others rightly. Preoccupation with self necessarily lands an individual in a place where they fail to relate to God rightly and they fail to relate to others rightly. You see, at the heart of man's problem is an inversion of priorities. What was the greatest commandment? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, sinful man's problem is that he inverts the priorities. He ought to love God first, love others second, and then himself. But he loves himself first, which results in a failure to relate to God or others rightly. So the first consequence of wrongful preoccupation is that those preoccupied with themselves fail to relate to God rightly. You see, thinking more highly of oneself than you ought to think has big repercussions. There's big problems that follow the one who is full of himself. We've already set the scene. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is invited to eat bread, leading Pharisee and his friends. But as Jesus enters, everyone's eyes are on him. Now, this isn't completely unusual. Everywhere Jesus went, he had a tendency of drawing a crowd. Remember, the crowds you would even chase after him. So, no, this isn't completely unusual. But the choice of words used here are different. It seems to indicate this observation had malicious designs. The word in Greek literally means to keep alongside. To keep alongside. And it's been translated by many translations. To observe carefully. Freiburg's lexicon explains that the word carries the general sense of directly perceiving something through close observation. Of being face to face with something and closely observing it. It carries the meaning, the meaning to keep under observation, to watch Closely. Or the term can have the sort of meaning where someone waits or waits in and lurks with malicious intent. Both Thayer and Gingrich's lexicons indicate the occurrence here, by context, has a bad sense. There's a malicious intent behind this observation. The same word is used in Luke 6 7. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely, were scrutinizing him, listen, to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Same word happens in the parallel text in Mark 3.2. This is also the same word used in Acts 9.24 when a plot is hatched to try to kill Saul, who becomes Paul, they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Same word used here. Notice that the thoughts of these Pharisees are consumed with what Jesus is going to do during this meal on the Sabbath. Their attention is keenly focused on whether or not Jesus will act in a way that is contrary to established rabbinical rules. Can I just say to all that, how sad. I mean, what a waste of attention on that day. They could have been focused upon learning from Jesus, but instead they were focused upon attempting to catch Him in something. They had set themselves up as arbiters of righteousness, and they were going to test to see if Jesus towed the line. Jesus will say later to these scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier portions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They're intensely preoccupied with the wrong thing. How often is this the case with enemies of the gospel? The lost are continually looking for a slip in Christians, aren't they? Doesn't the media love to do this? I mean, it doesn't matter that the media praises sin and immorality. If they find a professing Christian who's been caught in a sin or trespass, what does the media do? They make a heyday of it, right? This is a big deal. 
Meanwhile, they themselves glamorize such things. This is the way of this world. The world loves to find, to try to find some inconsistency in word or deed of those who follow God. By the way, as a side note, you know what the best antidote to that is? Live every day in the presence of a holy God. Recognize that you live under His sight. Then it will matter little if someone else is watching us. It will matter little if a malicious world is watching us if we're living and dying for God's glory. See, that was what Jesus' life was all about, wasn't it? He did nothing but that which His Father told Him to do. He said nothing but that which His Father told Him to say. Jesus' conduct was perfect, so nothing could be found against Him. These Pharisees are engaging in an effort in futility. By God's grace and His grace alone, we too can live blameless lives as Daniel did. What a great statement is made of Daniel in Daniel 6.5, right? They were looking for something to peg against Daniel so they could bring up charges against him and they couldn't find anything. So they said, the only thing we can do is to try to make up something against his, his law of the Lord. Something against what he believes. That's the only way we're going to come after him. Because he's done nothing wrong. These Pharisees are engaged in a wrongful preoccupation. They're trying to find something they can, some error they can find in Jesus. And then suddenly, add to the scene, a man entering, suffering from dropsy. The word here used, behold, you in Greek. Behold, communicates the suddenness of this man's appearance. His arrival, by the way, imperils the ritual purity of the meal itself. This man was diseased, and in his diseased state, he threatened the honor of the gathering of those who were there, the privileged and the powerful. And the question just erupts from the page, what is this guy doing here? His presence at the party is quite suspect. Certainly, he was not on the invitation list. And we're not told that this man was a deliberate plant by the Pharisees. We're not told that. Sometimes people would come to parties unannounced. Good example. Remember in Luke 7, Jesus again dining at the house of a Pharisee. When a woman of the city, who's known as a notorious sinner, discovers where Jesus is and comes behind Jesus and begins weeping profusely behind where Jesus is reclining, she wets his feet with her tears, she wipes them off with her hair, she kisses his feet, she anoints them with a costly perfume. This woman was certainly not an invited guest. And the Pharisee who invited Jesus is there at the other end of the table reasoning to himself that Jesus' identity as a prophet is now being called into suspect. Why? Because how would this man allow this woman, if he knew what she was, to touch him? How would he allow this to take place? How would he allow such a notorious sinner to touch him? We're told in that account that Jesus answers this man. And you're going to see the, the similarities between these two accounts. He answers this man. Now, the man hasn't spoken. <laughs> he was just thinking. Meanwhile, Jesus answers this man and tells him, of all things, a parable. Keep hold of that. So it's, possibly that it's possible that this man enters into this place, he's found a way into the dinner, and maybe he just got in there without an invitation. But given what happens at the end, again, of verse 1, with this word that they were scrupulously watching him, it's, I lean towards seeing this guy as some sort of plant by the Pharisees. They're looking to try to get Jesus on a Sabbath infraction. But whether this man was planted or not, the religious leaders must have all considered this a wonderful opportunity to catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath. As per rabbinical explanation... We're told in verse 3 that Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. Again, note this, verse 3, Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. What is he answering? Well, let's go up to verse 2. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. There's no statement from the Pharisees. What is he answering? I think, again, the intention here is that there were thoughts that were going on. And Jesus is answering, he's responding yet again to the thoughts of these religious leaders So while these scribes and Pharisees are waiting with bated breath, Jesus gives a preemptive question. He asks this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now note how Jesus transfers the scrutiny. 
The one who is being scrutinized is now doing the scrutinizing. He's now asking them a question. And with this question, he begins to turn the tables. Jesus now puts the question to these haughty religious leaders. Is it lawful? Is it permissible to heal on the Sabbath? Now, the question could be answered easily depending upon what the standard was used for explanation. The rabbinical laws were pretty straightforward on the the matter. They forbid any act from happening, even an act of mercy, unless it was life and death. If it was life and death, then you could help. But if it could wait till the next day, you're to let it wait. That was the rabbinical explanation. So the question is, can a man's dropsy wait until the next day? In most cases, absolutely. But this conclusion was based on the accretion of rules and regulations developed by rabbinical Judaism. Such specificity is not found in the Scriptures. And as is commonly the case, what may have started out as an attempt to try to clarify what does it mean to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, what it actually resulted was a policy that was at odds with the Scriptures themselves. This is almost always how this works. I mean, I don't think that legalists just come out and go, I just want to invent my own law and live by it. I mean, there might be some out there. But typically, a legalist develops because they go, okay, what does this mean? And so then they start to try to hash it out. And as they start to hash it out, they go, okay, this is what it must mean. It must mean this and not mean this. And all of a sudden, these things become codified. And pretty soon, then that has to be further explained, doesn't it? And that has to be further explained. And pretty soon, you've got a list of rules and regulations that are even inconsistent with the Scriptures themselves. This is where the Pharisees are. In the present case, what may have caused the religious leaders to be quiet might have been a concern that they would appear, as they actually were, uncaring towards the plight of this man. I mean, he told that they were silent. They didn't say anything after Jesus asked the question. Maybe it's their concern that if they say something like that, it will seem calloused. The question gives the religious leaders, though, an opportunity to make a statement before Jesus did anything. And their choice to remain silent may further explain their hope that Jesus would act and then they could accuse. But get how this works. If they answer Jesus' question and they say, yes, it's okay, then when Jesus does it, how can they accuse him? And if they say, no, it's not, perhaps they might look bad. Not only that, but... Perhaps they had actually invited this guy. I mean, maybe he was really a plant. Maybe he was invited. In which case, it caused them further problems as to why they had invited this guy in the first place and put him before Jesus. Whatever the case, they're silent to Jesus' question. And their silence before the miracle made it more more than difficult for them to complain afterwards. Jesus is super wise in his dealing with the Pharisees here. So Jesus then takes hold of this man literally takes hold of him, seizes him. It's the same word used to, in the Scripture to talk about arresting someone to take hold of him, to seize him. He holds the man. He takes hold of the man and he heals him and then sends him away. And then he addresses the Pharisees and lawyers again by asking, which of you having a son or an ox which has fallen into a well will not immediately pull him up on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus' point here is a matter of consistency. These men were so focused upon accusing Jesus of a Sabbath infraction that they couldn't even see their own hypocrisy. They were blind to the fact that they would take care of their children and animals should something even less than deadly happen to them. The illustration is this. If one of your children fell into a well, would you say to him, Hey, Billy, sorry, you're not in immediate death, danger of peril. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll be back tomorrow. Just hang out. You'll be fine. I'll be back tomorrow. Jesus says, it's absurd. All of you would pull your son up out of the pit. And he goes a step further. He says, if you had an ox that fell into the pit, you'd pick, the, you'd pick that out of the pit too. You'd render immediate aid. Immediate is important here. Immediate aid. Because remember, their whole deal is you can wait till the next day. Just don't do it on the Sabbath. Wait for the next day. Jesus is just furthering a point that he has made over and over and over again with the Pharisees. The Sabbath was instituted for people's good not to prevent good from being done. This is of all days, this is a day where works of mercy and charity and goodwill should be done. How crazy that their accretions of regulations had actually ended up in a situation which was opposite of the intention of honoring the Sabbath. 
Jesus is exposing their inconsistency. Now we ask the question, why are they incapable of seeing this? I believe it's because they're obsessed with tearing down Jesus and exalting themselves. Their vision and understanding of the Word of God was clouded by their intense self-centeredness. Rather than applying the Scriptures as a tool to examine their own hearts, the Pharisees and scribes had created their own regulations by which to puff themselves up and put others down. They had amassed heavy burdens for other people to carry, and they wouldn't even lift the slightest finger to help them with it. Gone was any sort of genuine sincerity of heart before God. Jesus said of such men in Matthew 15, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips. Their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You see, the Pharisees were following the bad example of some of their forefathers. Jeremiah 2.13 speaks about there's a prophetic judgment against um, some Israelites who had committed two evils, forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And this is the continual danger with wrongful preoccupation. You become preoccupied with yourself. You live to push forward your own pursuits. It's ultimately a sort of spiritual suicide. It is to live your life in pursuit of that which will not and cannot ultimately satisfy. That's why the warning here is that, guess what? You'll get exactly what you're looking for. You'll get these cisterns, but they hold no water. And it's just like this today as well. There are many who read the Bible with selfish interests, will similarly have skewed perspectives of the Scriptures. They will deny what is plainly there. They will invent what is not there because they live for themselves. They don't live for the glory of God. Rather than allowing the Scriptures to shape them, they shape the Scriptures in accordance with their own desires. And, as we're told in the latter days, we'll heap up teachers who will teach them the very things they want to hear. What they need is for Jesus to examine them, not they examine Him. I have the psalmist cried out in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. What's required? Humility. But humility is a gift from God. You see, pride and arrogance is common to sinful fallen man. It traces all the way back to the beginning. What our first parents fell to in the Garden of Eden is our common lot. There's an intense, wrongful preoccupation with self. A doubting of what God has said and an exalting of what we think. This world exclaims that we need to believe in ourselves. I mean, listen to the messages out there, even from many pulpits today, sadly. Believe in yourself. Believe in your own willpower. In your own ability to achieve. Our culture praises the haughty. Praises the self-assertive. Praises the self-sufficient. It's amazing to see the swell of literature that is produced at the effort of swelling man's pride rather than reducing it. So contra what Jesus taught, huh? He said, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. But this world screams, make much of yourself. Think highly of yourself. Many people think that the biggest problem people have is self-esteem issues. That's the issue. People just have good self-esteem I don't think they have a good esteem of God. That's the problem. Jesus explains it's those who are humble that are in the position of blessing. They're the ones in a state of enduring happiness. This is why I had read this morning those first 12 verses from the Sermon on the Mount, famous section, the Beatitudes. Blessed, the very first one there, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a contrast between that statement from Jesus and the way of our world. And I think there really is a spiritual logical order of all those beatitudes. It's not a haphazard list. One must be first emptied in order to be filled. All of us are in need of utter humility, a rightful appraisal of ourselves in light of who God is. So what we need is humility. But how do we gain it? It's interesting. We're commanded to be humble... But meanwhile, simultaneously, as they are with the commands of God, it's a gift from God. Genuine humility and brokenness, an admission of my depravity, an admission of my utter sinfulness, 
only happens by God's grace. Humility is an evidence that repentance has been granted. That God has granted repentance. This is at the heart of true conversion. There's a deep contrition over sin. A feeling of unworthiness before God. A recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. Poor in spirit. Spiritual bankruptcy before God. Acts 5.31 is a good place where it talks about He is the one whom God has exalted the right hand as a prince and savior, speaking of Jesus, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a gift. MacArthur rightly explains, Humility is not a necessary human work to make us worthy. You don't work humility to make yourself worthy. It's a necessarily divine work to make us see that we are unworthy and cannot change our condition before God and without God. This is why monasticism, asceticism, physical self-denial, mutilation, and other such self-efforts are so foolish and futile. We brought up Origen this morning in Sunday school. I think Christian brought him up. Um, Again, mutilating your body doesn't change the heart. The heart can still be as wicked and depraved as always, even after having mutilated the body. These self-efforts are foolish and futile. They feed pride rather than subdue it, because they're works of the flesh. They give a person a reason to boast in what he or she has done or not done. Such self-imposed efforts are enemies of true humility. You go, okay, well, so, so what do we do with that? I mean, you're saying it's a gift from God. Do I just sit around and go, I hope it comes at some point? What, what, what has we done? How does God grant this humility? What is the means by which God delivers this gift of humility? Remember, man loves to think more highly of himself than he ought. Pride and arrogance is to think highly of yourself, to think much of yourself. Think little of God and little of others. Humility is unnatural to the sinful man, and thus it's impossible. The only one who can bring this to pass is the Lord Himself. What's needed is a direct confrontation with the holy, just, and loving God. And as the lost truly encounter the Lord, it is the vision of an infinitely holy God in all of His sinless purity that shows their wickedness in stark contrast. We think of Isaiah 6. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. I have been ripped apart. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Coming in contact with a holy, just and loving God exposes our unworthiness. How did Simon Peter respond to Jesus when Jesus provided that miraculous catch of fish? Remember that? Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Jesus, we've been out here all night. What are you talking about? But because you say so, we'll do it. And up comes is such a load of fish. They can't even get into the boat. They've got enough help and they're trying to pull it on the shore. And at that moment, Peter says, falls at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, in the end, humility is just a right view of our place before God. So it's tied to right knowledge. It's tied to right knowledge. Now, this is a really interesting statement. Because we also know that knowledge makes arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us know it's so easy to find the other person, right? They're so prideful. They know so much. They think they know everything, right? We hate to say that about ourselves, but we ourselves are the same person, aren't we? we? Knowledge has the potential to puff up and make someone quite arrogant. 1 Corinthians 8.1 speaks to that. But recognize this. While knowledge can be a means by which one becomes arrogant and puffed up and prideful, it also is the means by which God grants humility. James 3. We had this read this morning as well. Contrast the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Wisdom from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness. And in the contrast, wisdom from below, 
earthly, natural, demonic, full of jealousy, selfish ambition, whose fruit is disorder in every evil thing. Yes, knowledge can puff man up, but knowledge rightly known brings man low. J.C. Ryle says it so well. The root of humility is right knowledge. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and His infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which He's been redeemed, that man can never be a proud man. If he's proud, he doesn't know himself, he doesn't know God, he doesn't know Christ. He goes on, Ignorance, nothing but sheer ignorance, ignorance of self, ignorance of God, ignorance of Christ, is the real secret of pride. He is the wise man who knows himself. And he who knows himself will find nothing within himself to make him proud. Great statements. Those who admit their dependence upon the Lord are in the proper position to dwell with Him in His kingdom. These are the sons of the kingdom. This is why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this man who's entered into this place, this man suffering from dropsy, functions in a couple of ways here. I think there's a metaphorical function of him in this picture, in this setting. He pictures exactly what the Pharisees themselves suffer from and their only hope of salvation and freedom. The word for this man's condition of dropsy comes from the Greek uh, word hudropikos, which literally means swollen with water. Hudor in Greek means water. So it would be full of water. It would be swollen with water. It's a condition that we refer to as edemia today. You don't often find the word dropsy being dropped about. The abnormal accumulation of fluids in bodily tissues and cavities is what's being described here. Now, technically, dropsy is not considered a disease. It indicates that there's another problem present. Edema can be triggered from, by anything from systematic diseases like congestive heart failure uh, or kidney disease to even simple things like insect bites, varicose veins, even pregnancy. What makes this disease more socially awkward, though, for those who are in attendance, is that some religious leaders believe this disease to be associated with divine judgment for specific sins. In particular, sexual sins were thought of in particular. So notice how this man is healed by Jesus. Jesus does what? This man who would have been unclean, ceremonial unclean, comes into this presence, and what does Jesus do? Seizes him. He takes hold of him. Perhaps it was an embrace of some sort. At a bare minimum, it was a holding with his hand. Bare minimum. Then he heals him and sends him away. I even find it interesting, a marvelous grace and mercy of Jesus, that after he heals this man, he just sends him away. You know, it's like, you don't need to be here present for the rest of this. It's like, you've suffered enough. You don't need to be in these guys' presence any longer than this. He sends him away. It might be better to shield him from this, the rest of this conversation. But how does this disease function metaphorically? The paradoxical fate of the person with dropsy was considered proverbial even in antiquity. There are statements made like this. Nothing is as dry as a person with dropsy. What is that talking about? Well, people who had this condition where they were retaining water and not able to get rid of it would be insatiably thirsty. They want more water to drink, but they literally could drink themselves to death. Seemed fine that there was an insatiable thirst here, but they were already retaining too much fluid. The term became metaphorical then as a label for anything in which you have an insatiable desire for it, and no matter how much you get of it, it actually just ends to your own destruction. So in particular, there are several writers, in fact, in like 400 B.C., some Greek philosophers, people like Diogenes, Ovid, Horace, who compared money lovers to dropsies. Dropsies were compared to money lovers, or money lovers compared to dropsies. They would say these things. As dropsies, though filled with fluid, crave drink, so money lovers, though loaded with money, crave more of it. Yet, both to their own demise. And listen to this. They went on to explain the following. Unless you cure the morbid condition of the body itself, giving more water won't help the thirst. Isn't that an interesting statement? Unless you cure the real problem, simply drinking more water won't cure the patient. And isn't it interesting, as it relates to money lovers, 
And by the way, this is one of the conditions, Luke 16, 14, that Jesus indicates the Pharisees were. They were lovers of money. You cannot satiate the craving for wealth and self-promotion with more wealth and more self-promotion. Right? What does the person ever say, you know, how rich is too rich? How, do you, how much money do you want? It's always just a little bit more, right? How much money do you need? Just a little bit more. It's an insatiable craving if that's where you're trying to find your significance in. This man suffering from drops, he's exposed. He waits in the presence of Jesus. Jesus heals him of his ailment. Recognize it wasn't until this man is exposed in Jesus' presence, waiting upon Christ, that there could be any help for him. These Pharisees won't admit their disease, so no healing would be performed. Those preoccupied with themselves fail to relate to God rightly. Second consequence, though, is that those who have a wrongful preoccupation with themselves fail to relate to others rightly. And it's not surprising, since our attitude towards God is often seen in our attitude towards others, the way we treat others who have been made in His image. Consider, first of all, this matter of seating. Now, recognize this. In verse 4, the Pharisees won't answer Jesus. They're unwilling to answer Jesus. And then in verse 6, they're not able to answer Jesus. They go from not being willing to not being able. The one greater than Solomon, as he's referred to in Luke 11:31, continued to confound his adversaries. His adversaries are trying to catch Jesus in something. Jesus ends up catching them in something. He's once again, it establishes unique authority, and so he continues. And it's almost comical here. Look at the way this is described. Look at verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Now, how did this whole thing get set up? Jesus is invited in, and immediately all of the Pharisees' friends are all there, the scribes and Pharisees, and they're observing Jesus closely. And now what is Jesus doing? Ever since I got in here, I've been observing you. I've been observing what you've been doing. And I've noticed this in particular, all you invited guests. You've all been fighting over the best seats at the tables. You've been all fighting for honor among one another. Well, there's some amount of debate as to what the common arrangement was in a festive kind of setting like this. Some say the long table would be set up, and so whoever's at the head of the table was the place of honor, and then the seats closest to him would be more and more honor, and the ones further away would be less and less honor. Others have gone through elaborate descriptions that people would sit down in, in like at little tables of three. They were kind of like U-shaped. And the person at the middle of the table was the place of honor. The one to his right was second honorable, and you know the honorable mention is the third on his left. But then they would arrange these tables in a festive setting where there would be one of those tables right in the middle and there would be a table on the left and the right and a table left and right of that and on and down, down it goes. So you've got these tables of three all set up. And so under this guideline, that was the setting that was involved here, the person at the middle table, in the middle, was the person of highest honor. To his right, second honor. To his left, the third honor. Then get this. The table to the right of that first head table became the second honorable table. The one sitting in the middle of that table was fourth in rank. The one to his right was fifth. The one to his left was sixth. Then we go to the left table, the table to the left of the main table, and we go to the middle position on that table and we get to the seventh rank. To his right would be the eighth. To his left would be the ninth. And then we go to the second rightmost table. And you see how we go back and forth. And you go, what in the world? What crazy, right? But an elaborate setup to delineate places of honor. What's really humorous about it is if that was a setup, it would be very easy to observe the shuffle for place of honor, right? Okay, oh man, I missed that seat, but okay, on that side, the left side now is the next closest place of honor. So I'm going to run to the left side. Oh, okay, I gotta, I'm going to run to the right side. And so you'd see how this could be really kind of crazy. It could be quite comical. We don't know exactly how what's going on there, but it was at least easily observable enough that Jesus can comment on it and nobody's objecting either. Everyone's aware of what's going on. Maybe some of them are a little more subtle in the way they sauntered over, over to a chair. and you know. But everyone was vying for places of honor. Regardless of the layout, this is what's going on. And So Jesus teaches a parable. Remember the other setting? Jesus is sitting at the table of the Pharisee, this 
this notorious sinner woman comes in. She cries, all the rest. He responds to their thoughts. Jesus here answers. There's not a question or statement, so he answers their thoughts. And then he tells a parable. What does he do here? Tells a parable. He says, suppose you're invited to a wedding feast. And he gives instructions. Don't take the place of honor. Someone more distinguished than you might enter after you've taken that spot. And somebody come over and go, uh, excuse me, you're going to have to get up and move. For this man, who is more honorable than you? I mean, whether you said it or not, that would be communicated to everyone in the room. And then can you imagine, the way it's described is really interesting. And you begin to move towards the last seat. I think even just that phrase, begin, it's kind of like, you can see the guy just hesitating, like, oh man. <laughs> As he takes the walk of shame, he's going to be ashamed of you. Maybe you take the last seat. And I wonder, you know, why the last seat? Why not maybe the next seat? Well, you're not bumping anybody from their seat, right? Everybody wants their seat of honor, so you're going to be bumped to the next available seat. But what seat would have been left? The last, you know, in a Baptist church, the front. But anywhere else, <laughs> thank you, Marcius. I take it back, the Marcius. Anyway, but, 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 but so he goes to the last seat, right? He goes to the last seat. Perhaps it's because it's the only seat left. Perhaps another thing is this. I mean, just think about it this way. Okay, so I've gotten up and I've transported another seat and traced left. And then somebody else comes in and goes, oh, I'm sorry, sir. You're going to have to get up again because this guy's more honorable than you. At that point, the guy's probably, I'll take the last seat. No more humiliation for me. I'll take the last seat. I'll be done with it. No more demotions happening on this occasion. So Jesus says, this is how you prevent all that. When you come in, take the last seat. Take the last seat. Recline at the last place. So when the host comes, he may move you up. And when you begin to move up, what a contrasted picture here. You won't be taking the walk of shame. You'll be taking a walk of honor as you're escorted to the place where you should be according to the host's appraisal of the situation. Can you imagine today someone presumptuously entering into a wedding reception and marching straight up to the wedding table and sitting right down next to the bride and groom <laughs> and saying, here's, here's my spot, you know, sitting right there. I mean, it's interesting. We can identify with this, this parable even today because while we might not have a whole elaborate system of seating arrangements, at formal gatherings, you kind of do. If someone of notoriety was here and they were speaking and there was some banquet set up, and there was a table where that person was at, in general, we recognize that that table has a place of honor. So we could recognize that. And people don't presume on those spots. And if you did, you could see how this very situation might come up, you know, where the wedding coordinator comes over and goes, I'm sorry, you're not sitting next to the bride the whole time. You're, you're out of here, you know. You've got other people who are supposed to sit here. Here's the point. If you take the lowest place, the only place you have to go is up. There's no further going down, right? Then, uh, at this point, I wonder if the host is kind of sitting there going, you know, I escaped that. I'm the host. And then Jesus turns and looks at him. Says, oh, I was also observing you. As I was observing all these people, I recognized something about your invitation list. In particular, the people that are absent from this party. The only ones that I see here are your friends, your rich neighbors, your brothers, your relatives. You're after the same thing, buddy. You're after, pu- after pushing your own agenda. He exhorts that, he says, instead, when you throw a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Then you'll be blessed, since they don't have any means to repay you. He exhorts those who have means to exercise hospitality that they should do so not only in reference to family, relatives, and rich neighbors. By the way, understand, every commentator gives it this, like, understand that Jesus isn't saying that you can't have your friends and family over to your house. It's not what he's saying. What he is saying is don't think it's some great act of charity to have people over to your house who can similarly invite you over to their house or whose prestige makes you look better. Don't think that's some great act of charity or righteousness. It's merely exchange. That's all that is. Just call it what it is. It's just exchange. Services for services. Honor for honor. That's all that that is. A Christian is one who goes beyond doing good to people who do good to them. All that is, is loving ourselves. A lot of people love themselves. They do good to others so they can get good back. They're just loving themselves. They're not loving others. Jesus exposes the pride and arrogance present in that room in a number of ways. But I want you to recognize this. 
this is not merely a matter of manners. I mean, the reason why he has told both of these just you know, a couple of nice sets of moral manners that might save people faces. Like, oh, good, I'm glad Jesus taught me that. So when I go to this party, I'm going to take the last seat. And all the while I'm conniving so that way I can actually get to the better seat. That's what I'm after. I mean, is that what Jesus is trying to do here? Why does he speak in this way? Is it just to provide us with a better ethic? Or is there something more crucial that's being pictured? By the way, the book of Proverbs already included what Jesus is saying here. The kernel of truth that Jesus is saying here is already provided in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 says this. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. See that? Same general principle already being communicated in Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Jesus is teaching, we're told at the outset, he told them a parable. This wedding feast is a parable. Look at verse 7. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests. And he concludes it with verse 11 with a, with a statement that generalizes what he's trying to get at here. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. This is not just ethical commands from Jesus. Although they're present... That's not just what he's doing here. He's explaining what's at the heart of those ethical commands. And at the heart of it is the glory of the gospel. Jesus provides this general statement. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, when you think about that statement, is it true in this life that all those who humble themselves are exalted? I don't know about you, but I've seen many times when those who dwell in humility are not praised are not exalted, are not offered a higher seat. They take the lowest seat, no one says anything, and there they are. Many times it's those who push and shove who get their way. And the person who's humble and self-sacrificing doesn't. So how can Jesus make the statement that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled? How can Jesus say further that you will be blessed for inviting those who have no means to repay you? When they have no position to repay the favor. They have no ability to bless you. So how is it that you're being blessed? I think the answer to this is indicated at the end of the text. Verse 14. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. While those in need cannot reciprocate, God can and God will in the resurrection. See Matthew 25 verses 31 and following for more on that. You see, we who are in Christ live as men who believe in a resurrection in the life to come. But recognize this, the heart of all of this. Jesus is not speaking of manners and behaviors, although they're included. What he's driving at is the principles by which the kingdom of God operates. Listen to how Isaiah 57 says it. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66.2 For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Jesus later in Luke's Gospel, Luke 18 speaks of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, it's the tax collector whose prayer is answered that day, who is heard that day. He was justified rather than the other. For everyone, Jesus says, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the very direction of Jesus' life and ministry. Philippians 2, which we had read this morning as a preface to worship. Have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And while that passage starts off, verse 5, have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus. So there is a sense in which that passage is speaking to how Christians ought to live, how they ought to think, that His example is worthy of imitation. 
If that's all that the Bible provided, we'd still be in a heap of trouble. Because how many of you have perfectly followed in the footsteps of Christ? If all that the Bible presented us here was just an ethic, a moral by which we ought to live, I'm not saying it's not present, it certainly is, but if that's all that was presented to us, we'd still be in a heap of trouble. The beauty of the Gospel is not found in a set of ethical principles, it's found in a person. It's found in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness, who died in the place of those who repent and believe in Him. Riken says, Jesus didn't teach the parable of the wedding places to improve our etiquette, but to show us the way God works in salvation. He exalts the humble. He brings up the broken. People who exalt themselves will find at the final judgment to be total humiliation. Those who believe they'll be saved by their social status or self-righteousness will not get what they think they'll deserve. They'll get what God deems they do deserve. The only ones who will be exalted at the final judgment will be those who humble themselves before God, who know their unworthiness, and therefore place all their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. This is the principle of Scripture. To go up in glory, you must first go down in humility. And if you don't humble yourself, you will be humiliated eternally. You'll be assigned a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? First Peter 5, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you at the proper time. Harsh words for the arrogant, isn't it? Strong words for the prideful, but glorious words for the broken. Isn't it wonderful that God has accepted in Christ the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind? The outcasts were accepted by Jesus. They were miraculously healed when they came before Him. His compassion acted in response to their need. His power overcame their weakness. So too, He has taken sinful, rebellious enemies who are far off and brought them near. He has invited the spiritually bankrupt to His marriage feast. He has given unworthy rebels a place at His table. That's the glory of the Gospel. The point isn't just to give us an ethic and where we should sit when we come to a gathering place. It's to teach us that God exalts the humble. Robert Stein said, To know God is to understand both His infinite greatness and our own impotence and sinfulness. Pride is not possible under such conditions. Romans 3.27 Where then is boasting? It's excluded. I wonder if there are any people in this room this morning who would admit that they have been in rebellion against a holy God. Have you spurned the riches of God's grace? Have you treated His patience and His forbearance as a light thing? Have you thought little of how magnanimous God has been toward you? Jonathan Edwards famously warned, The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow made ready on the string. Justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of a holy and angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. There's a sober warning. But all of us would do well not to only contemplate but to act upon. You see, the good news is that while God is holy and perfectly just, and He must righteously judge sin and wickedness, God is also merciful, gracious, loving, and compassionate. And this is seen preeminently in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's justice demanded a death, but His mercy provided a substitute. If you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. This is possible because God the just, as the song goes, is willing to look on Him and pardon you. God the just is willing to look on Jesus and pardon you. Adam sinned, plunging all of humanity into sin and death. But Jesus lived a sinless life, completing all righteousness, and died and rose again, that the many might be forgiven and granted eternal life. Be done with your wrongful preoccupation with self. 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you at the proper time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the moments we could spend around Your Word today. As we learn from the bad example of the Pharisees in this account, the desire to just scrutinize the actions of Jesus and and realize all the while that what they really needed was for Jesus to scrutinize them. I pray we walk away recognizing our need for You to search our hearts and try us. Our need for You to work humility within us. Our need for You to grant this perspective. Lord, thank You that You are saving a vast multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation for Your kingdom and glory. Ask perhaps even in this place right now, if there is someone here who has lived in rebellion against You, who has pridefully and arrogantly pushed forward their own agenda and have felt comfortable in their own self-righteousness, I pray that You would strip them of all of that. You would show them how worthless their righteous deeds are. How filthy they really are. And show them their need for a Savior. Pray that You would humble and break hearts in this place. That You would regenerate them. That You would grant them new life. Grant repentance and faith today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.